It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. This money guy show is going to be pretty interesting today because um, I don't know what it is. I'm not supposed to get head colds in the middle of the... I guess this isn't really officially summer yet. No, no, it's a, I think the official first day of summer was last weekend, right? Isn't was that, it? Uh, isn't that Memorial it, Day it sure, kind of rings It sure feels summer? like summer. Cause that, and it ties directly into the podcast topic because everybody who's on the east coast of America right now is realizing it's hot. Matter of fact, I heard the weatherman this morning say, this is the continuation of July-like temperatures. And while he means July-like temperatures, especially down here in Atlanta, is because the humidity is hot. I mean, it, the, temp, the, the thermostats go tell you it's 95 degrees outside, but if you go to the Weather Channel app and, and it tells you it feels like 103, you know that that's humidity that slaps you in the face when you walk outside. And people always ask me, Brian, how do you come up with podcast topics? How do you come up with what you're going to do on the next show? I'm, I'm always like, well, it's amazing how life will give you a topic. And that's exactly what has happened because... What was it about a week ago, Bo? Yeah, it's been it's been about a week now. Yeah, yeah. I, I've blacked out a portion of my life because it was so miserable. Is I, I went to a Braves game last Wednesday night. Great Braves game. Saw a great victory. It, it was fun. It was one of those quick games too, so it was out at a decent time. So I was able to get home. And I noticed when I walked in the house that it was still seventy eight degrees at 11 o'clock at night. That's not normal because our thermostat, you know, we have programmable thermostats. It drops it down to about 71, 72. I like a good, nice, chilled house. I was like, uh-oh. So I immediately file a claim with my home warranty because the air conditioner, I know it's got problems. We didn't get the air conditioner fixed until Saturday morning. And um, it was one of those things where the house got up to 88 degrees in the afternoon on most days. And that's when I quickly realized Mr. Carrier, who in invented the air conditioner back in the first parts of the 1900s, I think he's a saint. Because the South is not made to be lived in when it's that hot outside. So if you're wondering what the topic is today, it's on home warranties. And I'm going to do a little bit of a sidebar on air conditioning. And then we're going to close out the show with a discussion on money mistakes that people have made. I found an article kind of to close us out. And um, let me go ahead and get that. So now that I've kind of teased the show and what we're going to be talking about, this is the Money Guy Show. You can go check us out, money-guy.com. You can also write the show, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. And um, this really is one of those things where people are like, home warranty, isn't that something you do when you sell a house or you're buying a house? And yeah, I think that's when most people probably do deal with home warranties. But if you're a person like myself, and this is why I have a home warranty. Let me adjust this microphone. The reason I have a home warranty, that sounds much better. But why didn't you tell me that that was not sounding very clear? I didn't want to mess with your flow. You were going and rolling, and I just I was going to let you keep on with it. <laughs> the producers dropped the ball. Plus, I'm a little grumpy from this head cold. But anyway, um, what, what my whole thought about this home warranty is I was about a year, year ago, it was probably about actually about a half a year ago. I was out at a conference with um, some people from the Board of Education, and they were talking about how they live in older homes, and they've had repair costs, and they got them repaired through their home warranty. And I started asking them questions. I was like, "Tell me about this home warranty," because I'm just, 
you know, I've, I've read enough and, and gone through enough things that usually when people offer me a warranty of any type, these extended warranties on electronics, I'm always like, I don't want that. That's a ripoff. You know, that, that, stay away from that. But then I started listening to these guys talk about these home warranties, and I was like, wait a minute. I grew up in a household with a father who, you know, come home, and it was not unusual to see him have the Barker lounger taken apart, and he's repairing some parts in that. Come home, you know, the next week, and he's got the, the console, the, the TV, the big TV that you, you know, it was before we had remote control, that, you know, remote control was the kid sitting in the bean bag, and, you know, I, I was that kid, and you use your foot to change a channel, and, you know, Dad would have to change a tube every now and then in the TV. You know, this is the type of stuff he'd do, or the dryer started acting up, he'd go rip open the dryer and go buy a part at the, at the appliance repair shop and um, put it in there. Well, I watched my father do this stuff. You would think growing up in a household with a father who was super handy that just naturally I'd have an aptitude in that. Just kind of like, you know, you, you see these professional athletes and then you find out their children are, are, are about to be drafted or become professional athletes. And you're like, oh, you got that naturally from his father's good talent. Somehow, I didn't get any of that talent. I am the most unhandy person in the world. Um, you know, probably the, the, the extent of what I can do is I can unscrew a light bulb and put a new light bulb in, and it's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> so I get nervous whenever I hire anybody to repair stuff. That's why, I like, my auto mechanic, I have a relationship with my auto mechanic because I know if I just went to a different guy to get the best price every time, they'd see me coming a mile away and just rip me off. But if I build a relationship with the guy and keep sending him business, I feel like he's going to at least be fair with me because he knows, hey, Brian's a great referral source. Well, it's kind of the, I needed something to help me out on the home repair side because I live in a nice neighborhood. And I, you know, what I remember about my first house, because this is the second house my wife and I have built. Our first house was a, you know, a decent neighborhood, but I don't feel like people were trying to rip us off as much. Now I lived in a, I live in a nicer neighborhood I think people, when they drive into the neighborhood and they see, okay, these, these are nicer homes, they feel like, hey, we can add a little bit extra to the repair cost. And then when they meet somebody like me and they see that, you know, I'm out there, you know, picking weeds and khakis, like this guy probably is not doing a lot of, you know, handyman work. So they jack up the, the price for my inability to do things myself. So I've, I've had to find a way to fix that. And what I've come up with is I did do the home warranty because, and this is my thought process in it. And then I'm going to read the research because I, I, you know, I did this because of my own skill set. Now you have to ask yourself now, my father would have been dreadful for him to do a home warranty. This would have been the biggest waste of money for him to spend money on a home warranty. But myself, where I'm worried somebody's ripping me off at all times, it's not a bad deal for me, I don't think. Because if they come into my house, like this heat and air problem, and I'll get into, don't worry about that Wednesday to Saturday. It wasn't really the home warranty's fault. It was partially my fault, partially the vendor's fault, the, the service people. But what I like about the home warranty is I do have to pay a copay essentially when they come in. I have to pay a $60 repair fee or something like that every time they come. But if they come in and they say, Brian, this thing needs to be replaced, I'm not going to care because I've, I'm 60 bucks in. It doesn't matter if they just pump it full of Freon or if they replace it. So I feel like, you know, there's no, I don't have a conflict I have to worry about where somebody's coming in just to take advantage of me. Where instead of it just changing out the air filter, 
they tell me it needs to be replaced, if I'm paying the whole ticket, I'm not going to know whether that's right or wrong. If you have the home warranty, it kind of just takes that part of the equation out. Now, these things work, I will tell you. It cost me right around $500 to do the home warranty. And really, the only thing that they excluded was if your house was bigger than 5,000 square feet. So I guess all of the professional boxers and professional athletes of the world can't have this. But I think most people fit under 5,000 square feet. Um, there was no age limit. I mean, my house is only eight years old. Um, but it is one of those things, if you live in a 100-year-old house, I think they still will take you. So I decided to do a little research. Just for giggles as, a, as kind of a an additional sidebar it started making me think because from Wednesday to Saturday all I could think about was central heating and air and I don't know why this became an obsession of mine but I started thinking about because I guess it's because we had this heat span where all the temperatures were over 90 degrees here in the south and I started thinking about air conditioning and how important air conditioning is to our daily lives so I did a little history check and a lot of you guys, you don't think about this stuff until something like this happens. So I, I did a little research. Do y'all know about the history of air conditioning? Bo, do you know about the history of air conditioning? I have no idea about the history of air conditioning. Of course not. You're young. I mean, I'm, I'm young enough, too, that I've never had a life without air conditioning. But it's not that old, really. Air conditioning has not been around for, like, thousands of years. I mean, this is one <laughs> of those things. I mean, you think about for as long as humans have been on the, the planet here... Air conditioning is a relatively new concept. This is not something that's been around for a long time. This is what I call one of those industry-changing things. You know, just like we have the internet, and the personal computing, and you know, mobile phones. How you know, Apple's revolutionized things. I gotta tell you, I think when air conditioner probably came around, it was one of those times where, like, holy cow, can you believe they've invented that? And that's exactly what it is. So back in, um, it says air conditioning was born in 1902 when Willis Carrier, and we still see Carrier air conditioners. A mechanical engineer developed and installed the first system in a publishing company in Brooklyn, New York. The Carrier Engineering Corporation was formed in 1915 to manufacture and sell his new technology. Carrier's invention would eventually have a revolutionary impact on America. I will say it will, you know, because um, it is, it's amazing. I'll tell you one of the things, and I'm going to keep, you know, i got another paragraph to read. I even read an article that attributes a lot of the political changes that have happened across the country on air conditioning because the the South really was not as populous. You didn't have as many people really falling all over themselves to move to the South until air conditioning came, and it really didn't hit wide you know widespread throughout America until probably the fifties. So it is one of those things that a lot of the changes that have happened, you know, it's kind of one of those freakonomic type things is where you don't think about air conditioning as having a huge impact on things, but it probably really did both economically, politically as well as many other unintended consequences just by this great invention. So carrying on with this, this, this snippet on air conditioning, it said the world without air conditioning was radically different from the one we experience today. For example, before air conditioning, the summer heat transformed Washington, D.C. into a virtual, a virtual ghost town as politicians abandoned the nation's capital to escape its oppressive temperatures and humidity. The sizzling temperatures of cities such as Phoenix and Las Vegas inhibited their growth. The dripping heat of summers in the deep south withered the enthusiasm of industries to locate there. Air conditioning changed all of this. So then that started making me think, okay, they just said that about Washington, D.C. When did the White House get air conditioning? Because I can't imagine, you know, you run for this office to be the most powerful man in the, in the country. And, you know, from some other part of the country where, you know, it's humidity is pretty mild. 
it's comfortable, you run for this office, you get elected, and then you move to Washington, D.C., and you're like, holy crud, this is in the middle of a swamp, it's hot here. You know, so that's got to be a slap in the face. So I was like, well, when did we get air conditioning in Washington, D.C.? Well, the answer was reconstruction of the West Wing in 1930 after extensive damage by Christmas Eve fire in 1929 included central air conditioning system installed by, listen to this, this is how, the, you know, the world's a, a good place, Carrier Engineering Company. <laughs> so there he is. Um, when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his staff experienced their first warm season at the White House in 1933. Air conditioning units were also added to the private quarters on the second floor. So, pretty incredible stuff if you think about how much air conditioning touches our And what year was that again? Well, it was put into the rebuilt part of the White House in 1929 to 1930. It's put into the residential part of the White House in 1933. Imagine being the president right before it got installed. You know, the president who was there the term before the White House got air conditioning? Don't you feel like you kind of got the short end of the stick on I'm that sure. one? I'm sure. I also think about if you're if you're in, I didn't get to go pull the stat on when air conditioning got put in around the Capitol, you know, where the legislators meet. But i got to believe it was probably right around the same period. Imagine if you're a legislator who's serving before and then you're serving after. You're probably coming in like, holy cow, I might be able to stay around this place a little bit longer, which I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. This might have been, you know, one of those unintended consequences of Freakonomics. This might have been one of the reasons that we've had some trouble. Um, it's just that we, we do have our politicians in Washington more than we need them. But let's jump on these home warranties now that I've, I've, I'm putting up my, you know, taking off the, the spectacles, you know, taking I'm not the history teacher anymore. I'm kind of going to jump right over to the personal finance stuff. Our friend Liz Weston, you know, who we've had on the show before, she writes articles for MSN Money. She actually, it was hard to find any research on home warranties. Because, you know, the thing is, I've had a good experience with these home warranties, but I said, before I do this, I need to do some research to find out because, you know, is this a good idea for people to do? And I will tell you, research has been hard. And I still am not sure this is the perfect type of product for everybody. I think it's really a mixed bag. I think you have to figure out what your personality and what your characteristics are, your handiness, and your ability to really have a book of contacts if something goes wrong in your house, all kind of plays into the equation. So I was, I was very excited to find out that Liz had actually done an article on home warranties. And she even says in the first paragraph, most homeowners have never used a home warranty. In fact, some have never even heard of these policies, which are designed to cover the kinds of mechanical breakdowns that regular home insurance doesn't. And she listed examples of clogged pipes, furnace failures, appliances that go on the blink. She says the popularity of these policies, though, seem to be on the rise, especially as home sales have cratered, prompting buyers to seek additional inducements before making an offer. And I I think it's also, if we know we're going to be in our houses longer, you know, it's one of those things where you probably want to make sure you, you have things covered. So she goes, here's how the warranties work. For an annual fee of $250 to $600, the warranties cover repair or replacement of basic home systems such as plumbing and heating, plus major appliances. Air conditioning, pools, spas, wells, and sometimes roofs can typically be added to the basic policy for an extra fee. And that's what, I have that option if I want to add those things. It says, the warranty company contracts with local repair companies to provide service. If something breaks, the homeowner calls the warranty company, which arranges with a local company to dispatch a repair technician. If the repair or replacement is covered by the contract, the homeowner just pays for the service visit, which is typically $25 to $75 a visit. Although most warranties are issued as part of a home sale, providers say a growing number of homeowners 
55 to 65%, depending upon on the company, which decide to keep the policies after their initial coverage period expires. Or I'm part of a different type of people. I went out and sought this type of coverage out just because of my inability to do repairs myself. So she says, do home warranties make sense? And really she said, you know, some MSN readers think so, but she didn't give any definitive answer. And I think that's probably the way I'm going to have to be. You have to kind of look at your own personal situation and then do a lot of research. Um, And she did say, this is what you need to be careful of. The contracts do come with loopholes. You need to read your service agreement carefully to determine what is and is not covered. Coverage for plumbing, for example, typically ends at your home's foundation. So leaks or breakage beyond that would be your responsibility. Pre-existing problems typically aren't covered. Well, that's most insurance. I mean, health insurance is that way, too. Um, nor are breakdowns that result from poor maintenance or improper installation. Well, that makes sense, too. And that's what I never worried about that stuff because I knew my house was well-built. I'm just worried about it getting older and things starting to break. The contract also may require that a system be upgraded to current building code standards at the homeowner's expense before it agrees to repairs. Well, that's outside of, I think, most people, too, unless you're living in a very old, old, old home. So here's some of the, the warts, I guess you'd say, that Liz came up with. Regulation on home warranties is spotty. So she recommended you, know, you need to pick a company that has a long track history in your, in your state and has solid financials. And that was very important to me. And that's why the word of mouth from listening to some of my friends who actually had this with the same company I ended up signing up with was pretty important to me. It says we also, you don't have control over who does the work. And that is very true. They do send out their own technicians. It says the home warranty provider contracts with local service companies to provide the actual inspections and repairs you don't get to choose and scheduling repairs can sometimes be a trial now here's let me tell you what happened in my situation it's probably a good breakoff point i called and um, i actually sent an email request for my repair wednesday night around 11 o'clock at night so obviously nothing's going to get fixed at 11 didn't expect that. that's kind of a throwaway period thursday morning i did get a call before 9 a.m saying hey we got that you need a, a claim I said, can you get us out there? Can you get me somebody out there today? She goes, sure, no problem. We'll get you. I know it's hot. And I said, yeah, it's very hot. So the technician shows up Thursday afternoon, just as anticipated. Problem is, this is this is where Brian is at fault. I ran the system all day thinking, hey, maybe I'll cool it down just a little bit. You know, I'm afraid if I shut this thing off, instead of it being 85 degrees, it's going, it really is going to be 88, 89 degrees. Well, the problem is I froze up my, my unit. I completely, it was an ice cube. So much to the point that the technician couldn't even get the gauges on the outside unit as well as the inside. So it was my fault. So he says, I'll come back tomorrow, live in the area, no problem. I said, now you realize it's Friday. He says, yeah, I'll still come back because he said he he was going to make me his last stop. So I said, okay, just as long as you know it's Friday and it's going to be 80-something degrees in my house if you don't do this, maybe even 90, I'll do it. Well, Friday comes around. I call him at 4 o'clock because now I've got a cell phone number. I said, how far out are you? I've got three or four more stops. I'll be by. Well, then there was some missteps. What I think happened is it was Friday, 6.30. Technician wanted to come home. I'm sure he has family and kids. He skipped out on me. He didn't come by my house. So I called American Home Shield. That's the company, and I'll tell you a little bit about them in a second. You know, that night in a panic, they made some emergency calls. They could not reach anybody at the repair company that they had contracted with. 
I contacted them again first thing Saturday morning. I contacted them about 7.30 in the morning. They then immediately issued me an emergency outside um, authorization where I could go hire my own construction, I mean, repair company. I thought that was class. I mean, that is. You know, they, they said, we understand this is an emergency. It's 90-plus degrees there in Atlanta. We're going to issue you an outside authorization. Brought in somebody. They were there by 11 o'clock that morning. Got it fixed. I even had the warranty company call me back on Monday to follow up with me and make sure everything was okay. I was impressed. I mean, because that was not the home warranty's fault that the technician decided he didn't want to work past 6.30 on a Friday night. And um, I imagine a lot of heating and repair people are going through that down here in the south right now because it is hot and a lot of things are breaking. But um, I was impressed. So it was one of those things where you can, I guess, if you're in an emergency situation and their technician drops the ball, they will let you choose who you use. So I thought that was kind of a nice touch. So um, Liz is right. I think that probably is. You don't get to control who does the work. But if there is an emergency, I think they are flexible to a degree. Um, she also goes on to say, home warranty companies often favor repair over replacement. Repairs are usually cheaper, but that doesn't mean that they're the wisest choice. Um, and then she had a nice little link. And I might, Bong will give you this article so we can make sure we link this, because it does have a nice little chart of how often things are supposed to last. Like a central heat and air unit is supposed to last for up to 15 years. So mine is only about halfway through its life, uh, life expectancy. We'll see if it holds up to that. And then she closes out the article with saying, you still need an emergency fund. Home warranties are no substitute for an emergency savings or home maintenance fund. Most homeowners should plan on saving at least 1% of their home's value each year to cover maintenance and repairs, according to Eric Tyson, who's the co-author of Home Buying for Dummies. So 1% of whatever your house is worth is probably a good rule of thumb to have. Um, you know, you need to have more in cash reserves than that anyway. And then she closes it out also. So when might a home warranty make sense? She goes, in the first year you own a new home. When money tends to be tight, a home warranty can temporarily substitute for a home maintenance fund. If you're trying to sell a house, a home warranty can give buyers some peace of mind and may reduce the chances of you being sued should an appliance or system break down after the sale. Home warranty also... Um, can work if your home systems are aging and you're willing to settle for repairs if the warranty company won't replace the brakes. So that kind of ties in, you know, my house is eight years old. I think it, may, you know, it's starting to get show a little age. And I've had the great experience of I signed last November. My One of my double ovens, the, the main control panel went out. That was, imagine, a three or $400 repair. Both of my units have had to have, be tweaked a little bit this year. So I imagine each one of those visits is probably at least 200 bucks or right at 200 bucks. So I've definitely got my money's worth out of it this year because it's a $500 policy. It's $500 a year, $500 one-time payment. No, it's $500 a year. No, it is an annual an annual payment. And that's what I even went on the website. Like I said, I'm using, you need to do your own research. I don't know if they're all good, if they're even available throughout the country. I use American Home Shield um, is the one I signed up. And I was like, how do these guys do this? Are they making money at this? And even on the, I, I imagine they don't count on people doing the math that I did. But they, they had here... They, they, when they get, have about who is American Home Shield and why you should use them, it's, listen to this, it says, because I'm going to tell you, I did some math based upon what they tell us. It says, we lead the home warranty industry with over 35 years of experience caring for our customers, and today we have 1.3 million home warranties in force nationwide. AHS is committed to and solely focused on providing re- relief from home repair hassles and continues to deliver innovative home warranty products to our customers. Okay. 
So I hear that, 1.3 million. So I just did the math. I was like, let's just assume $500 for everybody. I'm sure some are less than that, but right. let's just assume that's $650 million they've got coming in. Then it says, there's a question that says, how many times can I use my AHS home warranty? And they answered it with unlimited during your contract term. Currently, we have over 1.3 million active warranties in place nationwide, and on average, over two service contract requests are made by our customers each year. In 2007, that resulted in over 304 million spent nationwide to take care of our customers by repairing and replacing covered items. Did you hear that? 2007, it was 304 million is what they spent on actually the repairs. But aren't they bringing in like 600 million? Yeah, that's what. That's where I was like, this is a great industry to be in because that's at least 346 million. Just real quim- simple math. I'm sure that's not how this all flows out because you got your administrative expenses, your salaries for the people who are answering the phones and all that stuff. But a lot of flexibility there in, um, in the profitability numbers. So this is obviously works out for them. And that's probably why they can... If you read, um, it says, my, 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 my old home systems and appliances are old. Does that matter to AHS? It says, no, the age of your home or system components and appliances are not important to AHS. The coverage items must be in good working condition and properly maintained at the time of coverage when coverage is purchased. And it says, does AHS need to inspect my home system and appliances before I purchase? No, home inspection is not necessary in order to purchase an American Home Shield home warranty. So it's, it's kind of a, a, a little bit of an honor system there. Right, I mean, right. but, but um, I think it's an interesting concept. I really do. I, I can't tell you that it's something you should do, but if you're one of these people that is not handy, like myself, you're worried that somebody's always coming in to rip you off, I think it's not a bad purchase. I mean, it's, I think it's um, if I can spend $500 a year and have the peace of mind knowing that I'm not going to get ripped off, it's worth it to me. I mean, I'm kind of at that point in my life where I think that makes sense. I don't know if, like, my brother's much handier than I am. I don't think it makes sense for him. My father, who is much handier, he doesn't need to be doing this. This is probably great for somebody who is exactly like me, you know, who's very busy professionally, has, um, you know, enough success that this is not where they know their aptitudes are. So you, you buy protection for those things that you know you're short on. Um Bo, you have anything else to add on home warranties? I know this is kind of boring, but I thought it was kind of something that hit the life. No, know. I think home warranties are great. Just um, in case, you know, in case someone who, who's in your life every day, their air conditioning goes out and they're grumpy for like a week, um, <laughs> the home warranty kind of steps in and makes them less grumpy. So I, I'm all for them. I, I would love to hear other people's experiences because I, when I was doing research for this, and, I, and it was there was a comment made on American Home Shield. Um, which their website is ahs.com. I don't get anything for telling you this. Matter of fact, they're probably going to be surprised that I'm even recommending and saying their name because I was, you can imagine during that week, I was pretty grumpy with them too. But I did read in one of the articles as I was doing research that somebody had used them, had the same experience I've had, meaning they had a lot of repairs that they did cover that first year. The second year they renewed with American Home Shield had zero claims because I guess everything was, you know, working in fine condition and year three, American Home Shield would not renew them. So I, I don't know if that's a trend. And I did notice when I was reading the disclosures with AHS, and it says, "Can I renew, um, you know, my home warranty that I got when I somebody, per, you know, I bought this house?" It says yes, but then in fine print it says at the option of American Home Shield. So I don't know how widespread that is. That maybe they only let you do this for two years, and then they cut, you know, cut bait because they just 
say, you know, maybe this guy's going to start having more claims if there's an underwriting process with that. But it is something I want to make sure I drew to the, drew our listeners to, to, to notice and know that that's out there. Um, let's talk about real briefly. This was off Yahoo Finance called their financially fit, saving smart, and living well. It's my biggest money mistakes. And the, the contributor, this is on Yahoo Finance. I found it, but it's actually um, the, the original was published through CNNMoney.com. And I thought this was interesting because there was eight items. And the first one, some of these, I liked them because I felt like we could add some color to each one of these and tell you what we've seen with our own personal lives as well as what we've seen with some of our clients. And the first one was, um, this was provided by Christine Flood, was she bought a vacation home as an investment. She says, I've been in the rental market since I was in college and thought owning a ski condo would be a good idea. What I did not know is that vacation rentals are a whole new beast and I, that I didn't understand. The operational costs differ greatly. For example, you need to hire a management company for guest services and housekeeping. That's 30 to 50% of your gross rents. And my vacation home is now worth $30,000 less than when I bought it. You know, I think I've told you guys, I've kind of had the same experience. I had um, one of my CPA buddies had a client that got in a lot of financial trouble and offered us a beach condo down outside Destin, and um, seemed like we were getting a one-bedroom for the price of a three-bedroom condo at the at the time. Well, we were offered a three-bedroom for the price of a one. Got that backwards. Say, so I was like, it might not you know, have been so good of a deal. <laughs> we got a three-bedroom condo for what the one-bedroom condos were going at the time. And um, I will tell you, it's a beautiful place. But here's the downside to owning vacation property. You don't get to use it during peak time. The only time I've gotten to use our beach condo during peak time is the BP Gulf spill last year because nobody was renting our condo at that time so we did get to go down there and use it during peak times other than that it's always booked up and it is a money pit it is something because people are always tearing up stuff you have to do capital calls with the the condo association and the cleaning and maintenance fees do eat you alive so uh, i'm not a huge fan I've, i've decided that as soon as we can and we can sell these things this thing prudently I'm going to be out of this market too because it's just not something. I'm not a big fan of second homes in general now. I think it's one of those things you have to reevaluate. Um, the next person was Daniel, who's 52, an engineer and consultant. He said he kept too much money in employer stock. He said, I had over 10% of my net worth in a single equity, my employer stock, and held on to it even when the market went south. I held on to it out of sentiment. Because it was my own company. In 2010, $50,000 worth of stock turned into a $27,000 tax loss. I deal with this all the time. And this is the advice Bo and I give people. You already have your financial life tied to the company through your W-2 and your monthly paycheck. Why would you also want to have your financial independence outside of your employment cash flow tied into the exact same company? Don't do more than 5% of your investments into your company stock, even if they're doing that great discounted employee stock purchase plan. I really would cap that at 5%. I worked with a lot of Lucent executives when I was at the previous firm I was at, and I could tell you some horror stories. Uh, people having a tremendous amount of their net worth in these um, companies that they were executives for, and it went to pretty much nothing. Now, the thing is, that used to be the culture. A lot of these companies... Um, I know some people who've worked at UPS in the past and other things where that was the culture is that you don't sell your stock. That's part of you showing that you believe in this company and you're going to be supportive of it. But I think with the downturns we've had over the last few years, these companies, the cultures that has been broken and that, that anticipation or expectation that you're going to do that has probably been changed within the culture, which is a positive thing. 
Um, the next thing, uh, this was provided by Phyllis Goodman, who's 63. She said, I trusted a pro's pick and ignored the fund fees. After retiring, I rolled my 401k over to the company that had serviced my insurance needs for more than 30 years and blindly took the agent's recommendation without researching management fees or the funds. I lost money and was charged a great deal. you got to know what you're paying for, guys. I mean, this is, that's common sense. You know, you I, I think you, the days of just going to somebody and they come into you and talking about how they're going to manage your money and they just say, trust me, I'm good at this, that doesn't work. You need them to show you what their investment philosophy is, what they've done for clients. You've got to get people to prove to you. I mean, that's the way we run meetings here at, at Preston and Cleveland is I try to te- te- treat clients like I would want to be treated. I'm a very analytical person. I don't trust many people. I think that you ought to have to prove yourself. And, and I think that's important. Bo, you have anything you want to add on that? No, too? I think that's spot on. Um, the next one, this is for my younger listeners. It says, too risk adverse for my age. And this was, um, his name got cut off. Oh, but he, um, he's a project manager up in Connecticut. He says, when I quit my job in 2002, I converted my 401k into an IRA at a brokerage and left it in cash for the next seven years. Well, we all know what happened in 2003, 4, 5, 6 Part of seven were pretty good years in the financial markets. I wish I'd invested that money during the strong post.com recovery. It wasn't until after 2008 that I thought about what to do with my savings, and then I stupidly tried to trade and lost money. Well, this poor guy. Yeah, he got. I mean, can you imagine he comes he comes out at the end of 2002, which is probably the best time to come into this, you know, to 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 best to, to reinvest because we've been through a bad period from 2000 through 2002. So you're getting in cheap. And then he sits on the sidelines, not making any money hardly, and then he decides to get back in in 2008. Oof. That's rough. That's bad luck right there. So he says, um, my fix, I had. Uh, I regret not having a personal financial education, either formally or through friends and family. So now I read, observe, and carefully manage my own money. I've opened a Roth IRA, an individual account I play with. I let myself get creative with that account. I don't know if that last part sounds good to you because where's that core, consistent investment philosophy? Playing around with your money, I don't know if it is what I'd consider. That sounds more like chasing the hot dot. Um, the next one was from Paul Jarvis, 29 years old, and this guy's a money manager up in North Dakota. It says, put short-term savings into growth stocks. I was 16 when my father passed away nearly 15 years ago. I inherited the house and a life insurance policy, which combined would have been enough for college and hopefully a payment. I followed my broker's advice and invested the life insurance money in a growth portfolio. The market dropped substantially over the next year, and while it eventually came up, I needed the money for tuition and I couldn't afford um, the market fluctuations. Now, we have, we're kind of unique. Most of our clients are probably closer to retired um, individuals or people who are already retired, but we have been picking, on a few, picking up a few new clients um, we do some work through the military on, unfortunately, widows of, um, you know, people who've, who've unfortunately, we've lost serving the country, and they're younger, as well as we've, we have a, a new client who had lost their a family member and inherited a, a decent sum of money at a young age, too, and both of these individuals are in college, and what we've tried to tell them is, just because you're young doesn't mean that you're your asset allocation can be that of a young person, especially when you inherit money before you've even gone to college. Um, because I, I don't think you really know what you're going to do with your life, what your life is going to look like, what your cash flow is going to be like after college. So if you have all this uncertainty, 
you can't design a portfolio that really reflects your age and your income and your goals at that point. So what you have to do is you have to design a portfolio that's actually a lot more conservative than your age might suggest. Because since there's all these question marks about your life, and you might need more money for college, because what happens, you go to college, and you decide that, hey, a bachelor's degree is not going to get me to the goal of what I'm looking for. I might need to go get my master's or even something beyond that. You need some liquidity. So we've tried to, with our younger clients who have come into these windfalls, but they're still, their life has a big question mark over it. We've tried to have that built into their investment plan. And I think that's exactly what this gentleman is talking about, Paul, is that he had somebody just because he was young said, hey, you got to swing for the fences. This is the time to take the risk. And that's probably true for a lot of people. If you're like, um, you know, I talked about that new client that we've got that, um, We've got that new client who realized at 23, all he needed to do was start saving money. Now he's in his 40s and he's built up a nice nest egg. That works because 23, you're probably out of college. You've started your job. You can have an aggressive portfolio at that age. But if you're young, still in the college phase, you know your, your life has those question marks, you need to plan accordingly. Mm-hmm. The next one we had. This one kind of, um, I don't have his name or age, but this gentleman's 45 years age uh, of age. It kind of cut it off when we printed it. But um, he t- his, his biggest mistake was he panicked when the market plunged. Now, his answer, I thought, was atrocious down here at the fix, but let's read what he did. He says, my mistake in the July of 2008, I put my 401k into an aggressive growth fund thinking I was buying at the bottom. When the Dow fell from 9,500 to 7,000, I just kind of panicked and sold. Had I not paid attention to everyone who was screaming, or had I taken a deep breath, I would have had a lot more money. I should have been patient and stayed in there. Okay, so that's what he, because he did. He wrote it from, sounds like 10000 to 9500 somewhere in that range, down to 7000 Well, we all know the Dow kind of bottomed out in March of 2009, right around the 6600 level. So he was right there at the bottom, but instead of just hanging and staying the course, he bailed and went straight to cash. So, but this is the part which we all tell you, don't follow emotions. Emotions is one of the worst things. That's why you can see the correlation of when the the S&P 500 is at highs. The cash levels that are sitting out there in money market funds are usually at historic lows. And then when the, the, the stock market hits historic lows, you see cash levels hit historic highs. There's an inverse relationship on where cash levels are and where the stock market is. And that means that the average investor is usually doing the exact opposite of what they should be doing. And and this gentleman was kind of doing that exact thing. What I thought was very interesting, though, on his fix, because these people, their biggest mistakes are also supposed to provide you what they've done to fix their situation. It says, right now the market is so volatile that I'm going to stay the course and keep contributing to my money market fund. Oh, no. (laughs) He's 45, so i got to believe he's at least 10 to 15 years at a minimum from retirement. Not so sure that money market fund, because remember, cash is kind of trash right now. It's going to be building up for that long-term retirement plan. But, oh, well, he's at least not timing the market anymore. The next person was chasing hot stocks. Um, This gentleman, I think he's in his 60s based upon the picture. I don't have his age or name, but it said during the tech bubble, Um, I jumped on a high-tech stock that was already at a high. Even when the stock plummeted during the tech crash, I hung on for years before I finally got out. His fix was, uh, I no longer go after hot stocks or really any stock at all for that matter. 
I'm much more of a buy and hold investor and I'm more disciplined. I focus on diversification, stick with a long-term strategy and keep fees low. All, sounds like good things. It sounds like he, he's a wounded investor. That's mm-hmm. what we always tell our, our best prospe- prospects are clients who come to us with a wounded invested heart. Um, because if you know they've either had a bad investment manager who's done them wrong or they've been do-it-yourselfers who have made a bad decision, that way when they come on board and they see that, that we do have a plan and we're really focused on things, um, we, we think they appreciate us more. Whereas sometimes those young windfall clients, I worry about them. It's kind of like I pick on, um, I know my first job out of college had an outstanding boss. I still, Mr. Bob Kaiser, I don't know. I don't know if you'd ever listen to this podcast, but he was a great boss. But you don't realize that because it's your first job. So you know, I thought the grass was greener, and you go out there. And I think sometimes that I worry about that with my my investors who come into to windfalls of money who've never done any type of money management or worked with any other professional before, is because they get a hold of us first. They don't know if we're good or not, you know. So it's it's, it's kind of that same. We like an investor who has a wounded heart because I think they appreciate us better. Um, closing this thing out, uh, the last one is this individual, she's a, a, a middle-aged woman. She had uh, failed to rebalance. She said, I started investing at the start of the tech and internet boom. I watched my accounts double, triple, and then quadruple in four years. And then all go down again. My problem was getting myself to sell when the, the good going was good. The greed factor was really strong in me. Well, it's usually pretty strong in everybody. I could have made a lot more if I had sold when the stock prices were high. And then she put her fix. I don't think it's a good idea to try to time the market. It's worth getting outside of the irrational part of your investing. Now I regularly sell a certain amount of my winning funds. I don't worry about the ups and downs anymore. When the market has been up for a long time, I take some profits. So I just I would encourage you just make sure you have a consistent plan that actually meets your risk as well as your goals that you're shooting for. And... Um, you know, it's going to work out. And that's why sometimes I think, you know, it helps to have a professional that can help you fight those emotional demons that kind of fight us all too, you know, because if you haven't been there, done that, um, your brain will tell you to do some things that are not going to work out in your best interest. So you've got to be able to get those emotions in check and, and do things right. Bo, you have anything you want to throw in before we close this show out? I don't think so. I think that was uh, I think that was good. You know, I'm hoping we can get some rain down here in the south so we can cool things off a little bit. But, you know, I guess if you're trying to put some um, silver lining to a bad situation, if, if things keep going like this, numbers are going to have to cut grass. <laughs> That's very true. So that we might very, be able to save true. some money. We're all going to be smoking hot and paying um, lots of air conditioning bills, but maybe we'll save some money on the landscaping because – Nobody's going to have to cut the grass anymore around here in the South. But um, I appreciate you guys listening. I hope the life experiences, you know, of us having to deal with a home warranty, the air conditioner being out, feel free to share with us. Go on money-guy.com. You know, share if you've got any tidbits out there. I also appreciate all the feedback. You know, we did a show on credit cards. You guys actually had some great input. You know, I've been meaning to go out there and research. Um, one of our longtime listeners has put out there that there's actually Fidelity also in addition to the 2% Amex card that I know Bo and myself use personally. There's actually another one. There's a Visa that does 1.5%. I thought that was a great input. Um, we're going to go check that out as well. But feel free, please, go and um, you know, check out the website. Also check out our Facebook profile. You know, That's where we're doing a lot more dialogue. If you really want to be dialed in to what's going on with the Money Guy podcast, Go out there and check us out on Facebook. Please like us if you like what's going on there. You can also sign up on the Money Guy website 
to get um, free blast whenever we have updates. But we're trying to keep you posted, and we're trying to help you make the most of your personal finances. Um, we'll talk to you in about two weeks. I'm your host, Brian Preston. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. <laughs>